Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and this week our guest is Richard Linklater, or as he explains, Rick Linklater, to anybody who's known him for any length of time. He's one of my all-time favorite filmmakers, and I think that's about to come through. As a Generation Xer, I've always felt like he inspired a massive, massive amount of the things that I love, and that he got there before anyone in my generation. His films like Dazed and Confused and Everybody Wants Some and the Before Trilogy make me nostalgic for things I've never done and never could. We venerate directors who create big, important historic moments with stately costumes and imposing sets and fussy accents, but I think what Linklater does is so much more impressive. He recreates small moments in time that no one realizes in the moment are moments. He lets us kick off our shoes and feel totally relaxed and even lazy in these moments to maybe catch a contact high or a sugar rush and feel the Texas sun or the cool moonlight on our faces, even if we're thousands of miles and dozens of years away from the moment on screen. He's one of the very few filmmakers who is brilliant and profound without feeling brilliant and profound. He's all warm and inviting and unpretentious, even when he's doing something as incredibly bold as recreating his childhood over 12 years of filming as he did with Boyhood. A Linklater movie, as many, many people, starting with Quentin Tarantino, have said, feels like a great hang. It's a more successful virtual reality than anything you'll get with a headset or a login. And that's very true of his new film, Apollo 10 and a Half, which is out now on Netflix. It's about a boy named Stan, living in a Houston suburb in 1969, who's enlisted to go on kind of a dry run of the Apollo 11 moon landing just before it really happened in July 1969. It's heavily based on Linklater's own childhood. Like every Linklater movie, I love it more the more times I see it. And I apologize if I sound a little awkward in this interview, because what I'm trying to say to Richard Linklater, or Rick Linklater, without saying it, is that I've always felt like he was some kind of cool older brother that I never had. Here he is. Richard Linklater, one of my favorite movie makers ever. Welcome to the Movie Maker Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on here to talk about Apollo 10 and a Half, a movie that I loved. Sure. Thanks, man. You're one of the first people I've heard from about it. You know, you work on a thing forever and then you finish it and it's, I have zero feedback. I don't know what anybody thinks really. Can I give some feedback? Yeah, you just did. Thank you. I mean, I was just delighted through from beginning to end. And as somebody (laughs) who's, who's loved your films going all the way back to the beginning, I thought that I kind of thought it was the most Richard Linklater, Richard Linklater movie. I mean, it pulled together so many things. It pulled together Rotoscope. It pulled together, you know, Jack Black, Texas, childhood memories, um, a feeling of being in a moment and recreating that moment. It made me, it does what all of your movies do for me, which is make me nostalgic for something I've never been a part of. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Do you feel like it's the most Linklater, Linklater movie? (laughs) I don't know. I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd be the judge of that. I mean, it definitely feels like a, you know, <laughs> I certainly, uh, well, sure. It's in that phylum. Um, you know, it's funny, a story can come from anywhere of what you want to obsess on and make a movie about. Um, this was one of those that definitely came from my own life. And it was actually, it's interesting too, even the, fantasy part of this movie the kind of fantastical parallel story that's from my life too that was a fantasy I had in second grade (laughs) you know I was in second grade 
in between second grade and third grade when they walked on the moon. And it was in actually to talk about the origins of this as an idea for a movie. It was in my second year of boyhood. This would have been about 2004. And that film kind of afforded me a trip through my own life because the architecture of that movie was definitely my own life upbringing. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking like, oh, what's going on? First grade, first grade, first grade, second grade, second grade, third grade. I got to do that 12 years. And just as I thought of the next year and I kind of had it in general, but the specifics I was remembering. And when I got to even the second year, pretty early on, I said, oh, that was an interesting time to be a kid. You know, I was lived near NASA for about 18 months. I was kind of in the city, but we lived out in the burbs for about 18 months. Yeah. Kind of the all white suburbs. You know, I had that just enough of that. And I was kind of like, wow, what an interesting time. NASA was right down the road. I was a little young, but I thought I probably the only I think to tell a story in this world, you got to feel like you're the right one. And somewhere along the way, I was like, that idea hit me and it was like, you know, I think I'm the guy, I'm the guy to tell that story. I mean, I'm the only guy, yeah. you know, who else, what other filmmakers lived in that part, lived in Houston, you know, Wes Anderson was just being born around that time. I'm the only guy of the right age, the right location to maybe tell what it was like to live there. So I felt kind of, you have to be delusional and egotistical enough to take it on. So I was probably saying, oh, that's my film to make. <laughs> and um, what my film was, was kind of this just, I wanted to convey because I mean, I had the idea and then it, it was 10 more years before I even wrote the script. So I had 10 years of just dreaming about it and thinking what it could be and what it shouldn't be and what's been done before. And I don't know, it, it always struck me as interesting to tell it. We've seen a lot of Apollo movies, a lot of anything to do with the space program naturally you see it from the astronaut or the NASA perspective. And I think, well, that's very valid. That's where the action is, of course. But if you think about it, 600 million people watched it on TV and only three people were on the mission. So it was a big experience for the consumer, for the viewer. Yeah. And as a kid, it was so damn exciting. So my goal was to try to capture what it felt like to be a kid during that exciting time. Yeah. And also tell the mission. And that was my fantasy, which is in the movie just kind of a dumb kid thing, you know, like, oh, what if they plucked, what if you could contribute, you know, <laughs> what if, what if they needed you for something? Of course they need a, a kid for something. So that was just kind of a, it was a goofy fantasy, but it became very real to me. Um, the more I made this movie, I thought, oh, that's a great little fantasy to have. It doesn't have to make sense like most kid fantasies. And yet you, you make it real. So I don't know. I'm just I'm just going on and on here about I don't know if I'm answering your question, but to answer it, it, it did come from a place. Yeah. A memory. It's a memory movie and a kind of a recreation of a time and place. All that stuff. Yeah, I love the recreation. I think about the first third, maybe the first half is a, a lot of it is lists of things that you were into at that time. And it's so evocative, like just the two scenes where you show all the TV shows that were on in 68 and 69. And then all the board games from 68 and 69 <laughs> when I was born in 75. So we kind of had those same games and those same shows in syndication. And sure. it took me right back, like exactly <laughs> right back to, to being a kid. And also wondering, you know, when did these games come out? When did these shows come out? Like, are these six years old or are these 20 years old? I didn't know. 
as a kid, it doesn't matter. You're, you're the consumer. It's coming at you. And it, it's not really, they're not asking you to discern whether this was, I, I couldn't really tell like those shows. Uh, it took me years later. Oh, that was in syndication. That wasn't a new show. That was, that had been from the fifties or sixties. And I guess people have always had to figure that out with kids watching TV. Um, I had a lot more, actually. I had a whole section on Saturday morning cartoons. I had a whole thing on wrestlers. I had a whole thing. It was just, there was just so much TV, you know, I had to pick my spots. Um, so, cause I think it was, it was just a lot, but that was the whole point. It was this just overabundance of specificity to all that stuff. I wanted to kind of overwhelm you. Um, cause I think that captures the mind of a kid, you know, you're, you're being sort of overwhelmed with, with media and ideas and people in the world. And, you know, you're taking it all in. And so I just was trying to capture that feeling. You really did. And there's a sixties and seventies childhood thing that I don't know if later kids understand, maybe eighties kids too, of being sort of bored, not being, you know, at war, not being in danger, not being under threat and having a lot of time to watch TV and really just puzzle over TV. And you see it, I think you started a 90s trend and a Gen X trend with Slacker, where the whole discussion of the Smurfs and what the Smurfs mean, <laughs> where later you see in So I Married an Axe Murder, this huge discussion of the Flintstones wives. Um, you see a lot of this through the 90s of like really fixating on cartoons. There was an album called uh, uh, Covers of Saturday Morning Cartoons. It was real good. It had that Archie song that's in Apollo 10 and a half. Yeah. Uh, and then it caps off for me with Whit Stillman's Last Days of Disco with this incredible discussion of Lady and the Tramp, which I think is sort of ends the trend and puts a perfect mic drop on it. Um, yeah. It's just so, something so indicative of the fact that my generation cared so much about these cartoons and stuff, I think just sort of reflects the amount of safety that we had and also boredom that we had before internet. Yeah, yeah, cartoon TV shows, yeah, it was all it was all very important. As you got older, it was it was definitely as you got smarter, older, culturally aware, it was <laughs> worth dissecting, you know. Yeah. Um, and and really finding new layers of meaning. Cause you're by doing that, you're trying to figure yourself out too. What cultural imprint did you were you born into? What does it mean? How are we different? How are we the same? How are we, you know, what what were they going for there? So I don't know. Yeah, it's it's it, it's always fascinating, but it, it was, you know, I, uh, it is a depiction of, I would say, a free range childhood. You know, is that you hear about it a lot now because it's been a generation or two before since kids could just wander around unsupervised by adults or, you know, I don't know when that went away technically, but it's gone. And, uh, it's too bad. You know, it was pretty fun to just roam the neighborhood with other people and get in games and get in trouble and do stuff. And, you know, everyone survived. It wasn't, you know, so it's, it's a portrait of that for sure. The fireworks and there's a scene where you think the fireworks are going to go real bad and then they don't. Yeah. I mean, we, we would have bottle rocket wars and, you know, every now and then some kid would get hit in the face and I don't remember, no one went blind in my neighborhood. I mean, I guess they did somewhere. But, yeah. uh, you know, you just did it and you hope to get lucky. You know, a lot of bumps, bruises, broken arms, but, you know, whatever. So you end up 
going into it, I mean, among other things, you end up doing some absolutely incredible animation between Waking Life um, with this film, with Scanner Darkly. Was there something sort of, was there something innately in you that was drawn to animation or how did, how did all yeah, these- Yeah, I mean, you know, concurrently to that, that 10 years of thinking about the movie, I was also thinking, you know, what a director does, how should it look? How should it feel? What would I do? So the initial idea was live action, natural. That's kind of my default mode. But then when I realize it's not working at all in my head, like the movie, the two parallel worlds, fantasy, it just wasn't quite working in that way. And then, so I, you know, I'm obviously interested in animation. So I, once I jumped to that, the kind of fantastical story mixed with the reality to me, mixed with the memory, mixed with the fantasy, it all started to work in animation, but I, I knew it couldn't be like what I did before with Waking Life and Scanner. I felt like I left that behind on those films. Like that was that, this would be something very different. Yeah. And it is, you know, it's really a 2D animated film because we had to create outer space. We created all this stuff that, you know, we, we can't build the Houston I'm creating doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I couldn't go to Astroworld and film. It doesn't exist. So, and animation can do that very well. Once I turned that corner and was like, oh, great. Well, it'll be a, this magical animated recreation. And yet I still wanted, I guess I'm a little spoiled with the techniques of the past. You know what I used on the other, as far as the characters go, because I wanted to be completely realistic and believable. So the only thing that hangs over, and it's really a small percentage ultimately, but it's a, it's it's one I care about, was the, uh, you know, we did these little line drawings of the, the characters. Yeah. So we shot it live action, but everything, we were sort of every shot in it, it was pretty fascinating shoot. We shot it all green screen and everything about it was a special effect. Mm -hmm. You know, every shot, like, oh, there's gonna be a, <laughs> This and that, you, you know, we're just in a green screen space. So it was kind of like my Marvel movie where <laughs> nothing's, that, that's not always true of Marvel movie, but you know, the more fantastical, uh, the background, or even if it was like the drive-in movie theater, like we didn't have a drive-in movie theater, but we'd tape off cars and we'd say, okay, there's the screen. And you know, but you had to work it out to the inch. Everything had to be completely designed and planned. We just didn't have to realize it until the animation but it was pretty meticulous it was very detail oriented but it was it was really fun but it, it worked for this story you know every movie has its own way to be made and what you're going for and that was just what we're going for here but um you know most of the animation was done in amsterdam with my um animation director tommy Pilata, who i worked with on the other two mm -hmm. you know we had actually developed some of these techniques about 10 years ago i was in development for a time at Warner Brothers, uh, we were talking about doing a remake of The Incredible Mr. Limpet. Talk about 60s. Uh, <laughs> Galifianakis and I were maybe going to do that. But we, the upside of that development period is we, we did have some resources to kind of perfect this technique. Mm -hmm. That was, it was like paintings, a little bit of the line drawing rotoscope. And then, you know, you could kind of create, in that case, it was underwater stuff. So I felt we had advanced the technique then. So I was never going back. So this new technique, it's sort of a mashup of, you know, 2D, 3D, some rotoscoping. 
Yeah. You know, it's a mashup of techniques uh, to tell our story. So I was, I was super happy with, um, I guess, the whole, the way the animation worked out, I'll say, <laughs> from the conception to the final realization uh, to be convinced, like, oh, yeah, that was so the right way to go here. So it wouldn't work any other i really don't well, think it would work any other way unless you made it for 200 million dollars and you know yeah no one's going to give me 200 million to make a uh, this story you know well how do you edit it i mean do you have to edit the live action stuff and then animate that yeah yeah you edit i mean you don't want to waste time animating things that aren't going to be in the final movie so you do edit you have this approximated green screen you know sometimes i would have I mean, we researched and kind of developed this movie for a number of years before. So I'd have someone's home movie of the Black Dragon ride at Astroworld. And so I would just edit in that a crappy, you know, scratchy Super 8 image and say, okay, right here, we're going to have that. Yeah. So it was just a placeholder in the edit for, for everything, for the TVs, for the song. So you try to get the, the dialogue, obviously the performances, the story told with just saying, this is what's going to be there. And meanwhile, we're working on character designs and color palettes and collecting images. So all the time we're editing, we're really beginning animation, but we're not technically animate. We're just, you know, building towards it. And then once the picture's locked that here comes the, the year and a half process yeah. of, of, you know, shot by shot, you know, but I was working with some really talented people. I mean, some really great, great animators. I mean, it was, it's like, you get to shoot the film again, you get to realize it, you get to color and light it and shade it. And, you know, it's, it's, it is, um, what makes for a fairly efficient shoot other than everything being a special effect. Mm -hmm. um, it's like shooting rehearsals, kind of the Ooh. green screen. What if it's the, you know, the final images and everything there, like so much filmmaking is it's the perfection of the image yeah. where this kind of wasn't that so much as um, capturing an image. And then all that perfection came in the, the multi-year process, <laughs> you know, of a long post. Well, one thing that seems so effective is that, you know, you want to just include the things that you need to tell the story within each image. So you really need somebody's eyes and eyebrows, for example, you don't necessarily need their dimple. You can just take out a dimple and focus on the eyes. I mean, did you find yourself doing a lot of that? A lot of uh, this person's tooth is distracting me or something? Yeah. I mean, you can sort of do anything. And a lot of it is for backgrounds too. It's like, well, I want the eye to go here and then that can be something else. We, we took on kind of different looks and color palettes, depending on what part of the story we were at and what we were trying to say. It was fun to incorporate a lot of documentary elements. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could take kind of a bold graphic, you know, blocky look for some of that just to get a different look. And yeah. yeah and with people too. Yeah. You don't, not everyone has to be fully realize you kind of come up with a design for that character and you don't, I mean, it's on one hand meticulous and kind of forgiving too at the same time. So you don't necessarily have to do hair and makeup. I mean, you want to get the hair, right. You want to get it kind of close. Cause like, you know, most animations, 
the animators are referencing something live action, whether it's a person or a, you know, motion capture. They're, you know, you're, you're trying to get some kind of bend toward realism. So you want it pretty close. You know, watching this, I kept thinking you can kind of combine this movie with Days and Confused and Everybody Wants Some and sort of get your whole life story. And then I did my actual reading and realized this isn't exactly your childhood. Like your parents were divorced. I don't think you had this many brothers and sisters. Um, how close? Well, well, yeah, you know, I. Uh, at this time, my parents were divorced, but I did have a step. I mean. My dad didn't work at NASA, but I had friends whose dads worked at NASA. Mm -hmm. um, I did live in a family with six kids briefly, you know, mm -hmm. for about a year, mm -hmm. um, you know, with divorces and remarriages and blended families. So I did get it. And I was the youngest. Mm -hmm. So there are things that are true to that, but it's not a part of the family I'm creating. You know, mm -hmm. my dad wasn't like that. He wasn't that kind of some of the humor you find, but, you know, I was definitely on the phone to my sister saying, now, what was, what did we eat every night? I forget some of the food prep and they, they would list all the, oh yeah, the canned ham, we got to get that in there. Oh yeah. The jello mold, you know, so I was definitely, uh, my sisters were uh, little memory consultants on certain details. <laughs> um, that was fun, but yeah, I mean, it, what is autobiography? I mean, it, it's definitely close in spirit, but I don't claim it to be, you know. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. You know, it's like close, but, you know, I don't, you know, boyhood was the architecture of my life, but was I, you know, that doesn't, so what, you know, every writer comes from somewhere, hmm. but um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's, it's just memories, you know, it's, it's very specific points, but, you know, my elementary school wasn't really, it was a little, it was a couple away from NASA. Ed White, my producer, Mike Blizzard, he went to Ed White, mm. which was right by NASA. So oh, that's more interesting to be at the elementary school, you know, so I'm not, you know, I'm not writing a memoir here. I'm trying to make an entertaining movie. So the nose thing with the chalk is so specific. I feel like that <laughs> must happen. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they, they didn't they weren't doing that to us anymore um, no there is a surprising uh through line of i, I don't know if it qualifies as child abuse but, but it, it's pretty persistent i i watched the movie um just you know you watch it constantly while you're making it but i watch it with a different eye as we got almost finished i go oh there's kind of a child abuse section in there <laughs> where they're throwing baseballs at the kids they're getting paddled i'm like yeah yeah it was a different it was a different time <laughs> Well, it always makes me laugh when people get mad at boomers. I know you're kind of straddling. I mean, 1960, I don't even know which generation you would count yourself in. We so called ourselves busters. Busters? We were, yeah, like baby busters. We were the end of the boom, beginning of Gen X. I mean, yeah, so I felt growing up, we were the left behinds. You know, if you were born in the 60s, the beginning of the 60s, you're kind of like, you don't have anything to do with people who were born in 1947 who are, you know, adults and all that, you're like a kid. I don't know how you're grouped with them, actually. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, you're sort of the the forgotten left behinds of the baby boomer. So I think technically you're a boomer, but it sure as hell doesn't feel like that. So the term buster, baby busters, I said, oh yeah, that's I'm a, I'm a buster. 
it made me laugh. I looked today and saw that I think the two people who kind of are, are credited with inventing Generation X or inventing the Generation X aesthetic were Douglas Copeland and you. Douglas yeah. Copeland is born at like the same time as you. Um, so he's not technically Gen X. Right. It's it's a very I mean, but you were saying way back in 1991 that the whole thing was bullshit and a way of <laughs> the marketing. Um, yeah, it's such a but you see that a lot. Like you kind of have to the ones who are commenting or being ironic about it are usually the ones that are just a tad older. You know, like there's a lot of those 60s people, Abby Hoffman and Ruben, they were all a little older, you know that thing don't trust anyone over 30 they were over 30 you know alan ginsburg you know they were the older guys seemingly representing but they were you know not that i'm comparing us to those guys because doug and i were just kind of you know snickering from the corner i think but uh but um well it just yeah i don't think and jenna it wasn't so solidified too that those years those locked in somewhere along the way that that was a that's a more that just shows what bullshit it all is because yeah. it's, it's such a construct yeah. anyway, just somebody's idea of some, somebody's organizing principle. But, you know, if you're anywhere near it, it doesn't make any sense. But Well, it's like a marketing thing for a generation quote unquote of people who defiantly did not want to be marketed to. So it's like, who is this for? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Didn't want to be spoken for or marketed to. Yeah. Um, and I, I love your, I mean, I've just been reading your old stuff, just looking at your definition of slacker versus their definition of slacker and how your definition is someone who doesn't follow the sort of, you know, nine to five job and instead pursues their dreams, which is what we're all supposed to be doing. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. Yeah. I always took a much more empowering kind of anti-establishment view and it was just weird. And that was that kind of was there for a little while, but to see that get kind of flipped around on you and just, you know, typical, you're just you're judged as oh, uh, you know, yeah, lazy and on, you know, it took took on a negative connotation. But that's just that happens when people aren't really digging into the works. They're just kind of their general negative attitudes toward younger people could play out and they could just generalize and you know say something negative it, it really they they sort of missed it you know but but everyone always does sort of miss the the point you know the the uh, the, the real points are lost on all but those who are there you know it, it's weird i kind of get the sense as i get the benefit of being older and being 46 and seeing it happen to millennials and seeing it happen to zoomers and this next generation is hopeless. No, no, this next generation is hopeless. No, this generation is good. Um, <laughs> and just all that going on. You just sort of see things. It, it feels kind of like you're in a dream and you know something is going to repeat itself. You know something is going to happen and you can't do anything about it. It's like I was talking to a 21-year-old filmmaker the other day, Ethan Ang, who did really well at Slamdance. And I wanted to tell him, like, there's so much stuff I want to tell you, but there's no point because you have to do it. You have to do it yourself anyway. And nothing an older person says really matters. Yeah, it, it doesn't. That older person can't impose it on you. I mean, you can just all you can do is listen and take in what you take in. You know, mm -hmm. there's sort of sometimes there's a time release formula to something someone says. So um, but you'll hear it when you're ready to hear it. But you can't really, you know, um, 
you can't really impose it on anyone. Hell, I'm a parent. I, I've tried. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but um, you know, yeah. people pick up on it when they pick up on it. I, I it's, it's a funny thing, though. Yeah, getting older, you do, you do see it in all realms, art, politics, especially. You see these cycles. You see, I've, I've seen a couple of new generations come up behind or whatever they call, you know, the millennials, the, you know, whatever. I'm just like, hmm. Yeah. You, it's like it's wonderful the renewal of of people you know the, the the same feelings you know i all i can say is like yeah everyone kind of goes through their version of that it's a slightly different social backdrop you know little different emphasis on whatever in perpetual injustices and whatever's in the air at the moment but it's kind of the same the same little impulses in both directions you know in all directions so. yeah i really like how you handled the squares versus the hippies in this movie where they're kind of aware of each other and then somebody says that the moon landing is a victory for the squares yeah you feel that way um yeah you know that came I, that things that never cross i had it both ways in this movie because i have an adult you know stan jack black's character is uh, narrating it from an adult perspective and I can share, he can have a little more information and the film can show things that I was oblivious to as a kid, but it came up as I was uh, doing all this research over the years, you know, you start looking at TV clips and we include quite a few in the movie. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my God, on that very night, they have Gloria Steinem kind of crapping over. We had one of Kurt Vonnegut. It didn't make the final, but he's crapping on the whole thing too. Um, <laughs> You know, I just thought, oh, yeah, hippies and progressives, I mean, really questioned the, the spending. You know, we have a lot of domestic problems. The world, you know, there's hunger. There's all the usual problems. And so, and look who was pulling it off. It was a militaristic, the guys doing it were fighter jog. They were military type people. Yeah. They look like conservative military type people. And as a kid, I just thought they were heroes and they are, you know, but I, I didn't really get the, that there was this opposition. And I think Apollo 11, especially in the whole program goes down to history as such a success yeah. that such an achievement that the, I don't know, all the contrary waves sort of just, they dissipated over time. Yeah. But if it, you go back to that moment, you realize, oh yeah, it was, you know, you could argue the whole thing's a cold war exercise to begin with the Apollo, the whole putting a guy on the moon, you could say that's probably what funded it. Kennedy was a cold warrior that the politics of it are this, and you could be opposed to that, but the incredible achievement that it was, you know, scientifically engineering, you know, it's the greatest engineering feat in history still. Yeah. Um, that, that endures. And, you know, we pay, we made a choice as a country back then to pay for that instead of, you know, affordable housing and all these other things we could have been doing, you know, so it's always a choice. And when it was over, we also made a choice to not fund it much anymore. So that's why it, the movie makes it clear that we all thought 
if you continued that pace of innovation and achievement, yes, we would have been on Mars. We would have been out of this, you know, but you can't, it's just priorities that, that shifted and it all went away. And that's just politics, really. That's not science. It's just a culture's priorities will be reflected in, in these national, you know, undertakings. I tried to show kind of the, the range of the debate from a, that maybe the older sister or parents would be aware of. But I, I was amazed, look, doing the research and finding all those, uh, you know, you know, the people with the really bad attitude toward it, I thought, wow, that's interesting, because that never crossed my mind. I was such an enthusiastic little science kid, you know. Well, it's funny, because especially from a more, I guess, progressive perspective that we're looking at, they're right, but who wants to give back the moon landing? Like, it's true that you could have fed a lot of people with the cost of that, but it, it's unthinkable to say, oh yeah, and so we shouldn't have gone to the moon. It's just a strange, it's a good debate, honestly, because everybody's right in a way. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, we can do everything if we want. <laughs> you know, you just gotta, it's, it's just gotta be a priority. I mean, I'm one of these, like, yeah, no one should starve and big social safety net and a lot of innovation and government spending on these kind of things. So I, I don't know. I, I just, yeah, no, no one craps on the moon landing now. I guess once it's over, the money spent, the achievement is there that it's just kind of like, oh, wow, it's still a beacon. You know, people still, for the next 20 years, it was like everything that couldn't, Remember, do you remember this thing? It's like, oh, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't figure out how to get the drain unclogged. You know, that kind of thing. It, it fit everything. It was like this grand achievement. We can do that, but we can't do fucking this. Come on. I don't hear that so much anymore, but it was a real, <laughs> but it, it, that was just an example of it. It's just this towering, towering um, achievement. It's in the closer I get to it and I have gotten really close to it. I, I really... It's, it's, it's that much more impressive, even upon closer inspection. It's mind boggling. You know, you've always kind of, I think, enjoyed conspiracy theories, not believed them, but kind of just enjoyed hearing them. Right. Um, and the only time I ever believed that we didn't really go to the moon thing was when I saw that every single moon landing occurred during the Nixon administration. And went, if there was one person <laughs> who would fake the whole thing. <laughs> but you know, pointing out at the end of your movie that 400,000 people were involved, it does make me think, uh, yeah, there's no way they fake this. You know, of all dumb conspiracy theories, and oh, 99.9% .9 of them are dumb, you know, on closer things. And I, I don't like, I mean, conspiracy theories have, what used to be amusing to me in that same kind of ironic, you know, 80s, 90s way, I mean, it's really metastasized, hasn't it? Yeah. It really threatens all of us. And it's just, it's gone from clever conspiracy thinking to this malignant, dark, and not very bright, just really stupid. So anyway, yeah. the NASA one is one of the dumber ones ever. <laughs> and it happened early. It, it came out right at that time. I remember hearing it as a kid, even by the time I was in sixth, seventh grade, it was like, oh, we didn't really go. I'm like, really? What Some about all those people who were like, and when did it become fake? Was the Mercury program fake too? Was the Gemini program? Did we orbit the moon and not land? Did we, is it all fake? And how do you get hundreds of thousands of people to participate 
in a conspiracy and not one of them, not one of them think something was amiss. No, no whistleblowers. No, you know, no one wants to publish a book, can pass a lie detector and get a book deal. No, I mean, it is the dumbest conspiracy theory. And you see how it, it perpetuates, you know, that great movie Room 237, right? Mm-hmm. The documentary that ends up at Kubrick fake the moon landing because he was ashamed, you know, blah, 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 you know. And that's like so insane. But I think that movie saying these people are kind of crazy. But that's been what, over a decade. And I see that same filtering like, oh, yeah, The Shining, people speaking of it factually. Shining has a lot of things about the moon landing in it, a lot of things about the Native American genocide. You know, conspiracy theories have a way of becoming like strange facts in the future. And they they really shouldn't. They really (laughs) shouldn't. It's it's wrong, you know. I really liked the Stan character who I'm going to venture to call your character explaining 2001 to other kids in the schoolyard and them just running away. Was that you? It was at a little league game. Uh, yes. And I did do that. And I remember the guy running away from me. So. Wow. So you're a pretty hardcore movie fan, even as a very small child. Uh, well, we saw movies all the time. You know, there were movies on TV, obviously, but then there were, yeah, that's what you did. We went to movies every weekend or it was as shown in the movie, it would be your babysitter in the summer, especially when you're kind of like, oh, and the, your parents are sick of you or you, you know, it's just like, hey, we're going to drop you off at the movie theater mm. and you sit there and watch three movies. So, yeah, that was heaven. You know, like the movie says, the, astro- the amusement park, but that was kind of expensive. You couldn't do that very much. But yeah. the movies were cheap and, you know, <laughs> you just. Yeah. yeah. So movies were a big thing, but I, I like the movie. I mean, here we go. 2001 is, you know, one of the greatest movies ever made, but the movie treats it as kind of equal footing to, you know, it and Hellfighters and Shakey's, you know, they're just, they're just movies you're watching as a kid. But uh, 2001, I'm, I am kind of proud when people say, Oh, you're a movie maker. When did you start? And I said, well, I saw a bunch of, I was like movies, but I saw it as a kid and really understood it. You know, I, I felt I understood the movie in some special way as a, as a first grader, you know, that's crazy. Right. And, it's and yet, and yet it works on some level. And I did remember <laughs> trying to explain it to people. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find, this might sound like a left field question, but do you find that a lot of people like Gen X people kind of put a, uh, want to put like an older brother thing on you, like kind of the, the guy who had the cooler records and left behind all the good books and went to college. Um, on just, me? Yeah. Cause you got there first. I mean, you got to indie film first, you got to Austin first, you, <laughs> and you and Robert, I mean, I know you're from Austin, but you and Robert. I'm not from here. I'm, you know, people, no one's from Austin. We all move here, but um, you know, and that's so funny because where I'm positioned and we were talking about generations, I was the one, everything had already been done. Wow. There was no new ground to be trod when you move. When I moved to Austin in 83, it's like, oh, yeah, all these the the armadillo, all these cool clubs, it just closed. Yeah, you missed it. And that's how we felt as a generation, too, with the boomers like, oh, yeah, we've kind of taken everything. There's not much left. So I always saw that ironically. It's like, well, I'll just forge my own path here and, uh, you know, take the best way, do the best we can with the the table scraps we've been left. And um, no, it's just it's just kind of funny to, to think that way. 
but to answer your question, older brother, I don't know. At this point, do people? And I, and I hope I'm the cool uncle of some kind. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, given the number of times that I watched Dazed and Confused growing up, and the number of times—I mean, not growing up, but in my twenties—and the number, the excitement me and my friends had when a new Linklater movie came out, like it does you did kind of occupy that space in our minds of like, this was the cool guy who got there first and <laughs> we'll never be able to do anything that cool, but we can appreciate how cool this is. So I don't know. I don't know if it's an uncle or a. And in, in my mind, I'm the guy who got there after the previous, the generation before me and we're just operating in the shadows of others, you know? So I think that's how it perpetually feels. Yeah. I, I know you can't say that you kind of invented the Austin film scene, but. I mean, from my perspective, it's you and Robert Rodriguez and you starting the Austin Film Society. And now you have all of these people from L.A. moving there in the last couple of years. What's it like to see that? I mean, you said once that Austin had the best ratio of cool people um, and the lowest number of assholes. Does it still feel that way? <laughs> I haven't done a poll lately, but I think those numbers are, are being challenged these days. <laughs> Look who's moving to town. But uh you know, I don't know. I try not to judge. And I'm not going to be that old guy saying, ah, uh, like, I don't know. Yeah, I just, um, still pretty cool. Yeah, still, still cool. Good, good vibes. But, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to be a young person here, probably. The More. reasons we moved to Austin and not San Francisco, New York or L.A. is because you couldn't afford those places. Yeah. Austin was cheap. So if that if that's in your dilemma now, I don't know where to move to 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 live cheap so you don't have to work and you're not in debt so you can spend your time doing your own thing. Because that's to me, that's the crime. Y young people, you just need time to develop, find out who you are and and try stuff. But if you're hemmed in by money, I don't know. I, it's just you got to make it. You got to make your life work for your art somehow what you want to do. It's a challenge. How do you feel about the state of indie movies and the state of movies in general? Just to ask a huge wide that's open. A, that's a big question. I mean, it's so, it's so weird. Cause I mean, it's challenged anyway. And then COVID put another, you know, another like tidal wave hit it and made it a little un less recognizable. So I don't know. I, I tell young filmmakers, it's a really good time to be a filmmaker. I mean, the technology, everything's helping you. It's cheaper in a way than it was when I was, it's, you don't have to risk your life as much as you used to. I think it's harder for indie. I think the thing that's changed the most, I mean, you've referenced some of my early films here. Sure. I, I just think if those films came out today, they, they wouldn't, I think films occupied a, a different place in the cultural conversation than they do now yeah um that an indie film could actually be a part of a bigger conversation yeah. you just don't see it anymore you know you just don't it's it, it, it's we're in a bubble we're in our own bubble and it's cool it's great but i don't i don't know there's something in the culture that has devalued the bigger grander culture is really distracted and uh and indie movies like cool personal films are seem less uh, relevant, unfortunately, to the mainstream, 
where the mainstream used to have a place for it. I think in the mainstream thinking that this little section that's movies is completely overwhelmed with Spider-Man and, mm-hmm. you know, Marvel. There's not even a niche in there for, you know, previous generations. That was, she's got to have it stranger than paradise. You know, there was, there, you know, sex lies and videotape, you know, whatever. There was this indie film everybody was talking about. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, now they're indie ish films, but they're, they're streaming on Netflix and they're, they're like, you know, they're not, I guess the, the road to indie status is just so different now with streaming. So it's just, it's just not the same, but you know, if you go to Sundance or South by, you're going to see a lot of really great films, you know? So it's the, it, in a way it's, it's as good a time as ever, but maybe the cultural impact is different. So, but I mean, what can you do? You know, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm not a complainer. Yeah. You know, you, you try to focus on things you can do something about <laughs> in your own realm or whatever. Uh, I don't know. You know, just if, if that's, that's the one cultural shift I'd say I, I've felt over 30 years. Yeah. That's worthy of discussion or not even, I don't know, not that I have anything profound to say about it. It's just feels that way. The big cultural shift being you know, I think movies seem less vital, less important. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't believe they are less important. There's to me, there's more as important as ever. Yeah. But I just think less people maybe feel that way or something. I I don't know. I, I mean, I think TV has replaced movies as the thing that you kind of put on in the background and just kind of live with and absorb. Um, because not to bring up Days and Confused again, but I can't tell you how much that was on TV. Like when we were just, you know, having a party or something, Days and Confused was on. And <laughs> something I see about um, about some of your more recent movies is there's this, there's sometimes this thing in the reviews where they say, oh, well, this one has a plot. And I always feel like that's the stupidest criticism because they all have a plot, but <laughs> you're also the master of- They all have a story. Of course. And they'll have really rich characters who sometimes you only get to understand by spending time with those people. And I think the thing Tarantino said, I don't know how you feel about it. You've probably been asked about this a million times, but the hang, like how your movies are such good hangs. And one thing I love about this movie is that it's like a hang with your family and a hang I would never get to have with a bunch of people in 1969 who I like. Right. Yeah. I think I've been accused of being the, you know, the hangout movie guy, which is, that's fine because cinema can do that really well. And, uh, and Tarantino certainly made the biggest budget hangout movie ever with once upon a time in Hollywood, which is just such a brilliant, uh, yeah. Uh, genre piece of the hangout genre. (laughs) Do you think this falls into the hangout genre? I mean, it does a lot of things, obviously. Yeah, there, I'd say at least half the, yeah, two thirds of this movie is a hangout. You're hanging out in 1969 with this, these kids, this family. Yeah. Is there, even then, I think even the outer space, he's kind of hanging out in outer space. (laughs) I don't know. That's just the vibe. Maybe I I get. (laughs) Well, the, the other cool thing about a hang movie is you can watch it again and again and again. And this is a movie that I think you could watch again and again and get pleasure out of it every time. And just like laugh at little things every single time. Like, Oh yeah, now they're gonna get paddled. Remember when kids used to get paddled? That's funny. It's not <laughs> funny, but it's funny that it doesn't happen. 
I don't well, know. I think with time you can see it as funny. I mean, it's it's definitely not funny at the time. Yeah. But just I find cultural history is is funny. I mean, history is a lot of things. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. It's you know, if we look back at our history as a country, any any t- place in time, there's always something to be embarrassed by, and which is kind of funny when it's cultural embarrassment. It's like, oh my god, they said that, they did that, you know. <laughs> How, how much on your high horse do you want to get about how people behaved in the past? You know, they weren't stupid right. people. Yeah. There's well, they had the same minds we do. They're same educated. They just looked at things different. And on that, on that particular front. So I'd like to think we're all slowly evolving in one direction uh, to, to something better, but it, I don't know if that's even true. <laughs> Obviously not in certain areas, but um <laughs> Did, um, so I don't think that answered your question, though. No, it it does. It definitely does. Um, the one other thing I want the thing I wanted to end on is you kind of look at in this movie that there are sort of two directions we can go. You got the grandmother who's the conspiracy theorist who thinks you know everybody's going to be dead by the mid seventies, and then you've got <laughs> other people are saying we're going to go on our honeymoons in Mars. Um, talking to you know young Stan, how do you think we did? Like, do you think we lived up to the potential or went in the theater? I honestly think after a, after about a 45 year delay, I think we actually are finally going to Mars. So I'm excited. There was just this gap in time. It wasn't consecutive, but I'm fascinated by, if you think of Musk and Bezos guys who grew up in that era, who now have the means and everyone running NASA, by the way, my favorite government agency by far, (laughs) Um, they're doing that, you know, in April there were Artemis is going to the moon yeah, and going to Mars shortly thereafter. Um, at, you know, that's on the calendar. So it's happening. It just like everything in life, everything good in life. It just didn't happen at the pace you wanted it to. So I, I'm excited. There's, there's a lot to be excited about. Hell, uh, the James Webb space telescope is, is, just mind-blowing i mean that's that's incredible so i don't know I, I think i think it's all happening it just didn't happen in the sequence we wanted i mean the rocket and it, it's it's fascinating the way the culture has you know business politics culture that um you know spacex's rocket is uh what's it called it's going to finally surpass the saturn V as the biggest rocket ever but that took 50 years you know, to, to come up with something bigger and reusable. So no, I'm, I think it's cool. I'm excited. So, so to answer your question, the paranoid grandmother wasn't right. Although she was entertaining, like all conspiracy <laughs> thing. And um, yeah, there's two ways to go. I, I think, uh, you know, getting there. Have you toured SpaceX? I haven't. Oh, you should ask. You would love it. I just knew somebody who knew somebody and I got to go and they just show you just see all the rockets and all of the pods like straight up and you can touch them. And it just feels like something in an auto parts parts store, like just the materials, the same material they used to make cars. It's just absolutely incredible, like that just human beings make things this small that go that far and can accomplish that much. It's very, very cool. No, it's 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 inspiring. I'm I'm a big fan of all exploration and spending toward that and. Yeah. 
So cool. Uh, future. It, you have to be, <laughs> you have to be invested in it. Can you say that again? I'm sorry. No, the future, you know, and innovation. And, you know, you got to be on all fronts, whether it's technology for our industry, new little gadgets and things you got to be excited about and, you know, bigger things in the world, you know, like, like going to Mars. I think, I think that's great. I don't know how they're going to pull it off exactly. And to what degree, <laughs> you know, there's two pretty uh, important resources that they're short of, uh, namely water and air, but, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's worth uh, spending some time there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think this will be a good story and yeah. I love the movie and oh, thank, thank you. you for everything you've done. Well, <laughs> well, great talking to you about it. Just having a talk about a hang, you know, hangout movie, hangout conversation about a hangout movie. <laughs> We've. Uh... <laughs> well, thank you for everything. Uh, Truly, we look, we look boring on paper. That I can assure you. What's their conversation about? Oh, it's about eh, they're hanging, talking about. You know, that's my, my all my movies have a poison pill when you try to describe them. Like what happens? And they go, oh, they just drive around, and nothing happens. It, it always sounds like, oh, that sounds like a rental. You know, no, I won't go to the theater. Is that my own paranoid thinking about? Oh my God. No, you explained the concept of boyhood and you're immediately like, I need to see this movie. How, how on earth did they do that? I don't think that at all. Oh, well, that's one of the few that, that, that one does have a, it has a hook. <laughs> Boyhood's that rare, uh, you know, well, the, the pop song that has a hook to it. Most of them don't. So anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry to be a supplicant, but if your name's on the movie, I go see the movie. So oh, I don't really need the hook. So, okay. Well, thank you very much. That's very sweet of you. So oh, anyway, okay. That was the great Richard Linklater. I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker. And did you hear that? He said we hung out. We hung out. Uh, you can read my profile of Richard Linklater in the latest issue of Movie Maker magazine out on newsstands soon. It's going to have Nicolas Cage on the cover. That's what you're looking for. You know what? Let's, uh, let's go ahead and throw it up on moviemaker.com today. Did that sound spontaneous and exciting? Yeah, we're going to put up the Richard Linklater profile on moviemaker.com today so you can check it out now without buying the issue but we'd love it if you'd also go buy the issue again it's really good margo sapel's profile of nicholas cage has stuff i've never seen anywhere else anywhere uh, you can always visit moviemaker.com whenever you like we'd also love it if you would subscribe to this podcast or recommend it to a friend or review it or whatever you want to do uh, especially on repod our podcasting app of choice and uh, just thank you so much for listening this far i really appreciate it hope you've enjoyed this and see you next time